Hi, and welcome back to Tillin Tales. I'm your host, Sophia Matson. Uh, Tillin is the Welsh word for Celtic harp, and that is why you hear harp in the background the entire time. Not necessarily Celtic, it's more just experimental <laughs> harp. So, yeah, I've been playing the harp since I was six, and that is why I feel the need to incorporate harp as a part of my personality, I guess. Um, But I've got a lot more to say than just playing the harp. So here we are. I want to talk about self-empathy today. And if you enjoy this podcast, if you find yourself really vibing with with the vibes of this podcast, (laughs) with the harp music, um, and or if you're like, wow, that podcast gave me the best dreams I have ever dreamt because it made me fall asleep because what beautiful heart music well my friends you can go to patreon.com slash tales that's patreon.com slash t-e-l-y-n-t-a-l-e-s and tell your friends about it if you can't um give out of the charitableness of your heart that is fine you can talk out of the charitableness of your heart too that is a very valid way of showing me support as an independent podcaster um and if you do want to give i would appreciate the price of a cappuccino or a more intricate latte or a cocktail or an ipa love ipas yeah all right cool well i hope you enjoy self-empathy this is a really cool topic because we think about empathy always in relation to others we don't think about self-empathy and there's a lot of self-care talk nowadays but um it's just not the same um self-empathy is not painting your nails you know it's it's not taking a bath and it's not going on a walk necessarily it's really introspective and you can partake in self-empathy while you do self-care by all means (laughs) incredible but it's really going to be a therapeutic way of looking at yourself and your actions and i will explain also about how to psychoanalytically define self-empathy according to one study and how it differs from self-forgiveness that is another thing that we really focus on is forgiveness but forgiveness is not the same of same as empathy and we'll dive into why so today i'm going to bring up one book in particular it's called oh what is it called it's arthur brooks and arthur brooks wrote a book called love your enemies how decent people can save america from the culture of contempt this is kind of about the political tension in America and how to empathize with somebody who you normally would rather throw up on. <laughs> normally, you'd rather argue with and completely disregard or never see. And it's important to not feel this way towards people, uh, you know, for many reasons for many reasons that I honestly don't have to explain because you know what? I'm going to explain why you shouldn't throw up on somebody. I had a friend in high school who got (laughs) who got thrown up on by this one boy who 
he was like the one boy who told us all in third grade that God wasn't real and like we're all from the Midwest so like everyone has some kind of like God situation going on and this kid his dad was like the pediatrician for all these kids and he was like God isn't real and we're all so mad at him and so he also was the guy that in high school or middle school it makes sense for middle school but I feel like it was high school anyways he threw up on my friend and this was not because he hated my friend although it might have been but it's disgusting man you don't want to show that side of yourself imagine emptying out your insides onto somebody else and they never asked for it well it happens to the best of us it does and uh, i think that if we were to give ourselves a little more empathy first it would prevent ourselves from you know eating the things that would make us throw up on other people or feeling the feelings that would make us throw up on other people so besides throwing up on other people let's just get into self-empathy um i presented this specific talk that i'm going to give you to the wisconsin empathy project and that is a group of students at the honors college of the university of wisconsin milwaukee who get together and they figure out this empathy journey journey my dad and i were talking about the word journey and how we always go on journeys and i'm like i think it's time we switch the word to quest so they're on a quest for empathy and what they do is they interview people that they normally wouldn't talk to um, or understand or reason with and then develop an introspective empathetic point of view on this interview and this person and it's just so fascinating to see what a group of mostly liberal left-leaning college students come up with when they are thinking about their lives and their futures and they talk to somebody who is not really in their circle when you're in college you're around a whole lot of people who are like-minded right if you live in Wisconsin um, or another purple state, purple state meaning there are both a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans, it's a good 50-50. So in elections, a purple state is a swing state that can swing an election either which way in terms of the results. So it's an easy place to find somebody who disagrees with you. This was particularly terrible during the 2020 pandemic and through 2021 there were riots in milwaukee um a lot of marches and riots and i definitely had a lot of what were they called protests duh i went to a couple protests briefly you know because i remember during this time it was just horrifying there were helicopters outside until after midnight you know shaking my apartment building there were military tanks driven by cops coming down the street that I would get my coffee on and it's like right there by my house like this is really weird like it's it's weird to have a military tank driving down any residential street at all so this was a crazy terrifying horrifying time and I 
felt so much empathy for the people who were protesting and marching and I felt like they needed my support and a lot of people were terrified of this. A lot of people thought the people protesting were causing a lot of mayhem and you know that's kind of the point but finding the empathy for why these people feel the need to cause so much mayhem is important as well as finding the empathy for the people who are afraid and don't know how to approach the situation and live nowhere near the chaos that is happening and are just trying to understand. So we have to bridge this gap, and that's what the Wisconsin Empathy Project wants to do. This is my talk on self-empathy because you've probably heard, how are you going to take care of others if you can't take care of yourself? How are you going to empathize with others if you can't empathize with yourself? Here we go. In the past couple years through the pandemic, I have found myself at a major disconnect from the present. When lockdown struck and political tensions were at an all-time high, I embraced the possibility of drastic change excitedly. The nuance and distraction, while actually downright terrifying, allowed me to rethink my present and future. But people spoke of civil war and I lost myself in solitude among the roaring chaos outside. I became cold and numb to others, as well as myself. Aristotle discussed self-love in the lens of both problematic narcissists and of a benevolent friendship towards oneself that involves listening to yourself with reason that achieves balance and wisdom. This is similar to the notion that guy Arthur Brooks, who wrote that book about political tensions and empathy, this is similar to the notion Arthur Brooks discusses towards loving our enemies. Brooks calls for a standard of love that thinks clearly, looks at the facts, and does difficult things when necessary to lift people up and bring them together. And this standard of love calls for empathy, not just towards others, but towards oneself. In a world where solitude may be mandated, Self-friendship, love, and empathy is vital, my friends. And so from a psychoanalytic approach, a 2014 article by Nancy Sherman unpacks self-empathy with examples of war veterans' experiences and moral injuries. Moral injury is a particularly interesting topic to bring up during the pandemic because we felt moral injury not because we were in war, you know, but not because we had to deal with an order to go kill somebody, but because we needed to go to the grocery store and that might kill somebody. We might want to go out with our friends and that might kill somebody. And that is something, you know, where you are in the most passive, doing the most passive thing you could possibly do. You know, I got to go get eggs at the grocery store, but that might kill someone. Like, that messes with your brain. And it causes a lot of judgment to be had if you tell the wrong person that you went to the grocery store even if you had a mask on. That was a really difficult time for us. So she comments on people's tendency to unconsciously seek out the negative, fearful features of an object that, um, and that we fear in order to justify this fear. As such, self-empathy must be a very vigil practice. Taking a step inward to objectively view your recent or current decisions can save you from feeling shame and guilt later. 
Ultimately, consistent practice of self-empathy is humbling and will wire your mind to give more empathy to others. Although many of us were not actual soldiers on a battlefield during the past few years, many of us share similar traumatic experiences that have changed the way we perceive ourselves and others, both as individuals and fitting inside some social or political category, right? And the boundaries we have placed, whether they are forms of protection or status, have created one of the strongest polarizations our nation has experienced. So much contempt, guilt, shame, and death, not to mention the physical boundaries of isolation. It's about to get personal, but September 2022, so last year, I had finished, finalized the divorce of my ex-husband. I'm 24 years old, and as relieved and joyous as I am to have completed that process, my mind escapes into the past quite often. It has taken over a year to get to the point of processing buried memories of, um, you know, terrible things with self-empathy, such as the impulsive decisions and horrible things I said to my ex in an almost unconscious attempt to push him away on purpose. I wanted him to not want me either. And that caused me to take morally questionable and emotionally damaging actions. While using words like friendship, love, and empathy, it's important to note that the same 2014 study that Nancy Sherman did mentions briefly that we should not conflate self-empathy with self-forgiveness for a couple reasons. The first being self-forgiveness is an ill-fitting notion when there is no real intentional wrongdoing for which to demand forgiveness. And the second stating, difficult conflicts and the emotion that express them are never completely resolved. Self-empathy is only taking a present evaluative stance that differs from the previous stance and allows a narrative distance. Further, a study done in 2004 gives evidence that emotional access to a memory depends on how great the narrative distance has become. In other words, the longer you wait to evaluate your past thoughts and behaviors, the less able you are to remember the emotions you felt in that moment. But how can one self-empathize without getting triggered from accessing the emotions we felt during a traumatic event? Unfortunately, there might not be a way to avoid that. And some tips from that 2014 study are to internalize a second personal stance from a therapist or empathetic friend, or to internalize a empathetic stance from another person who has a similar trauma. Essentially, connect with others and explore new pathways of how to emotionally process what occurred, to look at yourself with new eyes. Specifically during trauma, dissociation is common, where we step outside of our bodies to escape feeling negative emotions. During the year leading up to my divorce, I remember numbness, and in many cases, I don't remember anything until someone says something that snaps me back to that buried memory. On that note, jumping backwards to the idea that we unknowingly internalize a negative emotional take on a person, thing, or memory, 
re-experiencing these emotions is an act of self-empathy and it takes some tough intervention before we feel peaceful in remembrance. Empathizing with others who have experienced similar traumas may be healing towards ourselves, but what of empathizing or loving our enemy? We're talking about loving here. (laughs) Crazy, okay, right? Okay, let's think about it. Arthur Brooks states, Exposing yourself to other ways of thinking, or even ideas or expressions of morality that directly contradict your own, makes it easier to cope with them emotionally. As emotionally draining as it may be, Brooks suggests we can grow stronger by connecting with those whom we disagree with. Dissolving the boundaries between us and them allows us to explore that vast gray area, which in turn loosens up our own mind and rigid expectations we hold for ourselves. For example, okay? My ex's family was very conservative, while mine has always been left-leaning, despite my dad's vote for Bush instead of Al Gore in 2000. Like many conservatives, they were suspicious towards the government. And I'm talking Bush did 9-11, Hillary's emails, airplane contrails and fluoride in the toothpaste causing subservient behavior, Michelle Obama's actually a man... (laughs) which was crazy to me, that type of suspicious. When I met my ex, I was 16, and he was 18. As I got to know his family and their views more intimately, I became upset. Worse, his family, even with their strong views, were non-confrontational, like a lot of people. But for me, I tend to address my questions and issues up front especially when it comes to racism or climate change and the cherished Obama family, okay? And when they first met me, I visited their intimate church service led by my ex's uncle in a cafe known for hosting college bands, the same one my dad's college band performed at back then. So this experience was like, I was like, what is this parallel reality that exists? I'm 16, what's going on? They are non-denominational, they speak in tongues, and they practice prophecy. Those type of Christians. And yes, I have attended a prophetic workshop in an attempt to receive the same message from God that another group member received across campus. Don't get me wrong. When I was 16 dating a senior who actually believed in something, had a family church where everyone thought that I was a heaven-sent, blonde, heart-playing angel dating their youngest son out of four sons, and this boy wanted to be chased with me? I was living the small town dream, my friends. I was a 16-year-old on top of the world. And as I matured over the years of being a part of this family, I became further outcasted for speaking up when I believed something different, such as Beyonce not being the whore of Babylon, or the concept of evolution, or the USA not being the greatest country in the world, or whatever that means. In the end, it always felt like a competition of who was being more loving like Jesus. And I loved to use that argument against them, even when I stopped pretending I was Christian. 
Eventually, my ex stopped playing devil's advocate to avoid getting in trouble with me or his family and started actually defending my opinions. So I was like, this is going up. This is pretty good. We're more of a team. And everyone battled for the moral high ground. So when lockdown came and Black Lives Matter protests occurred, all hell broke loose in his family group chat. I started to feel contempt toward his family, contempt towards my future, and towards my possible kids' futures. I wanted a connected family that shared moral beliefs. And this contempt that oozed from my body just slathered the group chat until I left it, only to ooze onto my relationship and sink back into my own skin. What did I get myself into? Even though I stuck up for what I believed in, I was so embarrassed to be associated with this family and with the idea of marriage. I avoided telling anyone I was married, especially at school, and shivered when I heard the words husband and wife. And before this point, I was so certain with my life. I was already married, as if that was a set life milestone. I had my future set on achieving my PhD in clinical psychology and my husband graduating from physician assistant school. Suddenly, even though I had great grades and a senior research award with honors, I had no desire to become a clinical psychologist. And my ex was not doing too hot in PA school. And I believe my ex had this self-contempt too. But also because he was likely more embarrassed of his own family's morals than I was. And Brooks asked the question in the title of his chapter 4, How can I love my enemies if they are immoral? Not to get too much into the whys of my divorce as I have been reliving for the past, you know, couple years. But one of the wisest things I believe Brooks mentions is to only regard the what's instead of the whys in political discussions with our so-called enemies. The whys are deeply personal. Unless you're ready to have a true empathetic conversation, asking why is usually a sneaky way to find your own moral high ground. It's a separating question, regardless of your intentions. Not only will you get a half answer, because it might be over text. It might be a brief conversation where you never normally see this person, but you're here at this party, and then you're having this kind of like getting heated political discussion, and you ask them why. And the cake is about to come out in two minutes. Really? You might force someone also to go down a possibly traumatic path that they have been avoiding themselves. It's our responsibility to ask ourselves why. And to be gentle enough with others by asking about their what instead. In reacting to a why question, okay, let's say you got thrown up on. (laughs) And... Now you're sitting here, and I need to react <laughs> in, a, in a decent way, you know? You're responsible for reacting with patience and empathy towards the other. Perhaps you have an extended moral reasoning behind your political views, but I found that when dealing with a bunch of people that disagree with you, telling the truth about your uncertainties, about your uncertainties, not your certainties, Uncertainties is a more effective strategy to find connection. 
Okay, what am I confused on? Are you confused about that too? In chapter 1 of Love Your Enemy, Brooks says, Your opportunity when treated with contempt is to change at least one heart, yours. You may not be able to control the actions of others, but you absolutely can control your reaction. You can break the cycle of contempt, and you have the power to do that. I wanted to hate my ex and his family so badly, especially because none of them reached out to me after hearing the news, but they taught me so much about empathy and maturity, both directly and indirectly. I spent all that time fascinated by his family dynamics, attending every gathering and participating without question, out of respect, even when it meant crying in the other room during Thanksgiving or having a discussion in the car afterwards. Making sense of their morals behind their political and social views consumed me, which usually left me feeling contempt towards them and everyone who didn't seem to care. My ex morphed into a person with a new set of morals and political beliefs eventually. Although I mostly agreed with him on ideas, his why was still weak and developing. That wasn't his background, right? So when you start to change your mind, your why is a little unsteady. I could no longer recognize him, though. I have finally come to realize that among all the confusion, I made decisions for my own survival that I did not yet understand. I gave myself the self-love out of instinct by being strong enough to get through the separation from this family, even if it was achieved through some impulsive and hurtful decisions. I suffered from the self-contempt until I made peace with some decisions that gave me the freedom I needed. I spent the year getting triggered by small discussions and arguments with the people I love, which helped me to understand where the issue lies in my own mind rather than the other person. It's been a year of decompressing and going on walks, journaling, and venting to my close friends. And when I blocked my ex right after the official divorce on Instagram, um, not the divorce on Instagram, blocking on Instagram, my initial feeling was that it might be rude to do so. Like, my feelings of discomfort when he liked my most recent photo were not valid enough to block him. And I realized through that, I'm so harsh on myself that I gave someone who caused me great pain and trauma more empathy than myself. I simply just needed to not see his name pop up, and I was hard on myself for that. I know I suggested not asking anybody why, but my question for you is, who is it hard for you to empathize with and why? And who is it easier for you to empathize with and why? I found it's really hard to empathize with myself. It's hard to push boundaries in my mind. When I am rigid on beliefs, when I am rigid on my habits, you know, I've played harp since I was six, so I was really hard on myself when I went to a lesson and I didn't practice all week and... I just had a really busy week, but then I sucked at my lesson and I just hated myself even more for not being able to do the piece that I was working on. And it was like this terrible
terrible negative feedback loop where I just hated myself so I didn't practice and I thought I was bad so I didn't practice until I should have just been practicing the whole time and then it would have been fine. Um, But I do that in my everyday life too and I know other people carry that habit with themselves as well. It's really hard for me to empathize with my family members. You know, people who I grew up with and who in my mind had that same dimension of reality, who shared extremely similar experiences with me and it doesn't make sense in my brain when they disagree on something or when they had a different shade of remembrance on something that happened to us. When I thought something was super fun and they were like, oh, I had a terrible time, I'm like, what? How? Literally how? That was the best time of my life. And I'm not giving them any empathy. And it shows that I don't give myself any empathy when I do that. It shows that I don't give myself the room to process my memories and my emotions with grace. These are important things, my friends, especially when we are coming up on another election soon. Think about the people who you disagree with. Think about the people who you are close with. And when they, you know, when they hurt you, it really hurts because how could they have done something when they should have known your entire situation? And it's funny because, like, this whole topic confronts the idea that we don't even know our entire situation okay this past week um i have been going to therapy lately which is cool because it took a while for me to get to actually find somebody um And when I did find somebody, they turned out to be a little too crazy. And so then I didn't have a person for like a year. And now I finally go to a therapist that I enjoy. And the reason I'm saying this is because I was informally diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. And it really blew my mind to find that out. I thought, I always knew I was kind of crazy about um, getting down to the bottom of things when I felt like it wasn't complete Um, in terms of my ex's family. I think that really manifested in just trying to understand the, the why and because my belief systems just did not line up. It just, it overtook me and it took me forever to get to a place where I could just accept them the way they are and coexist. And while that was not forgiving of of things that I found offensive, I could at least understand they are not in a place to process these concepts the way I do. When it comes to people that, you know, you get upset because you thought they could understand your situation, my family, like I said, 
just finding out that I have OCD, I'm like, I didn't even know that was going on. They must be so confused when I have an outburst, an, an anxious outburst, or I will not let go of an argument for the life of me because it needs to come full circle in my mind, but it's not the same for them. And I couldn't even understand that about myself. And I'm still trying to understand that about myself. You know, this is a very recent open wound topic for me right now. I, um, <laughs> I have a story about... I'm just realizing things from my past and looking upon them with empathy through this new OCD lens. And and for people who are neurodivergent or who have specifically have OCD and are not diagnosed until much later in life, you can finally look at past events and say to yourself, Oh my gosh, I should not judge myself so hard. You know, I hated myself for reacting that way, in a way that I felt out of control, in a way that was different than how other people react, in a weird way. And I know other people noticed that, or even if they didn't care, you definitely care so much. And it's one of the things is that I just constantly think about how others are perceiving me. I thought, you know, this is just a regular girl thing, and it kind of is, but it won't escape my mind until I know for sure what their opinion is, and I know they're not lying (laughs) about what they think about, what happened, how I reacted, if it's okay. So, in middle school, I went to this party... (laughs) And it was like one of the first parties I ever went to, and I was pretty weird. Um, But like, just skimming the acceptable level of being invited to a party with, with this group of people, you know, when you're in middle school and you have the more popular folks, and you're kind of in that zone where it's like, I talk to the more popular people in my grade but I don't really see like I don't hang out with them too much um I was in this weird zone where I was best friends all throughout elementary school with a girl and she just when she came to middle school she totally blossomed and like became super outgoing socialite and I was the opposite I relied on her friendship to be invited to things, and I wasn't totally out of my shell, and I wasn't totally ready to grow up. I wanted to be a kid still, and all these things were so confusing, these social things. I didn't really get the way that this whole popularity contest worked. Like, it really did not click in my mind, and I just, I, my thing was, I played the harp. So then that's when I chose the viola and I became an orchestra person, right? So I'm this orchestra girl in middle school and I get invited to this party. And we're waiting out of the bathroom. (laughs) We're waiting outside of the bathroom. And this girl comes out and she goes, it smells like shit in there. 
And I was like, whoa, I didn't realize kids my age swear. And like we talk to each other this way. I was not allowed to swear or say bad words at all. I wasn't allowed to talk like potty language, even though my younger sibling did and got away with it. For some reason in my mind, it stuck. I am not allowed to say these things. These things are bad. And they really affected me like swear words. I, when I was younger, I couldn't, I couldn't even watch something where it was swearing because it overwhelmed me. I don't know what the hell is wrong with me, but that's how I was when I was a kid. And so this girl comes out of the bathroom at this party and, you know, the par- and the parents are in the other, like, we're all in middle school, you guys. So she comes out of the bathroom. It smells like shit in there. And I was like, maybe this is my opportunity to try swearing. Oh my God. Perfect. So then since I'm waiting in line, the next person comes in and I'm like, it smells like shit in there, by the way. And the next person happens to be my best friend that I've known forever. And she goes, Sophia, you sound so stupid swearing. Never swear. And oh my God, you guys, I did not swear. I did not cuss until I was in college. I would, like, my friends in high school would be like, ha ha ha, Sophia, say this word. And I'd be like, ha ha, no, why? They'd be like, just just say it, it'll be fun. And so sometimes I would say a word, like if I was drunk or something, and they would make me say a sentence that I would typically be very uncomfortable saying, and then I would say the sentence. And somehow that was entertaining. I, I don't know where the entertainment came from but I loved to make my friends laugh whenever that was possible (laughs) so this is an extremely vulnerable confession but in college I didn't give myself I I finally was able to be like I am in a new environment with new people and I can finally just say whatever I feel And I'm going to try this without being judged. And so, you know, I told some of my new college friends I didn't really swear. um, But, like, I would say some things here and there that would be funny. And it was like this social experiment. Because I was so hard on myself. I was so afraid that I sounded ridiculous using a swear word. That I had to tell people beforehand, I've never, I've never really sworn before. So, like, let me know if this doesn't sound right. And for so long, I had that heavy, terrible feeling of contempt towards myself. Looking at that memory in middle school, where I was told that I sounded ridiculous when I used swear words. So much so that I did not swear until I was around in an entirely new state and city. And now I swear like a regular person. Like I just, I almost cannot believe that it affected me that way. That I held myself so caged up. I couldn't even use the language that I wanted to use to express my emotions. And I would tell myself, you know, this is good that I, I don't swear when I'm upset because if I ever do swear, people will know something's really wrong. I never swore when something was really wrong either, so 
it's not like it really even mattered. I just gave myself excuses for why I guarded myself. And it was not self-love. It was definitely contempt towards the way things would come out of my mouth, the way that I would portray myself. I was not free. I didn't give myself that freedom. All because I was so embarrassed from one instance in middle school where one of the people that I valued her opinions the most out of anybody, she invited me to this party, told me not to do something, not to say something, ever, because it made me sound ridiculous. I'm not blaming her. Whatever, you guys. This is middle school. Let it go. The stakes are high in middle school. (laughs) She had to make sure I was not weird in any way at this party (laughs) to save herself. (laughs) And so, you know, she did what she had to do. I don't hold this against her whatsoever. I hold it against myself for caring to the point where I didn't swear until I was in college, you guys. It's crazy. So, I now can see where OCD came in. Did I say that kind of weird? Yeah, probably. OCD came in and, like, took hold of my, you know, I, I mustn't swear or else, you know, I will per- be perceived like a crazy, weird person. And, uh... I cannot believe that took me that long, and I I now see, yeah, you know, I probably have been dealing with some kind of strange anxiety disorder, disability sort of situation, because that's kind of fucked up that it took that long for me. I don't know if you guys have any similar situations, Um, let me know if something influenced you to that extent where you can look at it now with empathy and think oh my god my poor tiny little OCD self latched onto that until I was in college and I couldn't express myself and I thought I was super weird and it actually shaped my entire personality of like being a goody two-shoes that didn't swear and seriously altered people's perceptions of me and made them feel judged and made them not tell me things that are vulnerable to them because if I don't use swear words, I must seriously judge people who use swear words. That was not the case at all. A lot of my close friends were people who did all kinds of things. I I have so many different kinds of friends and people that I love and cherish and would never judge. But for some reason, you know, for obvious reasons, because I didn't allow myself to take up that daring space, my friends felt judged. Or not even necessarily judged, but a little more protective of me and and what they would say around me and what they would the, the places that they would allow me in to see them for who they truly were and I think I still was able to see who people truly were and I think people were able to convey that you know when we had a true friendship but there was this unspoken discomfort <laughs> and 
that's all due to my self-image that affected their self-image and our relationship. And so I think you can see how when you empathize with yourself and catch yourself sooner than, you know, many, many years after middle school, if you can catch yourself much sooner than that, your relationships will be more genuine. People will open up to you in a way that you might not expect, but but that you will love and cherish. Your relationships will be more genuine because you're showing who you really are and what you really feel. And I'm sorry if that was redundant, but I just, I think this needs to expand because I formed an entire community around me that thought I was this angel that didn't swear, that appreciated God the way that they appreciated God, not in any different way, and was reserved. And I just, I wasn't that person. And I, even though I didn't swear, they soon found out I was not reserved with my opinions and that I had a very different outlook on spirituality. Not very different, but different enough to set myself quite apart. And I just tried and tried and tried to convince myself I am this person with dignity that doesn't swear and that is that helps my relationship with these certain people and it's like why am I putting this whole act up if I give myself empathy I don't have to put a whole act on for other people and people actually respond to that better and in turn I will create a life that is genuine around me people that really know what's going on for the most part you know the whole OCD thing not a surprise to the people that know me but we would have a little bit of a better way to solve problems you know on family vacations where I'm going insane because the one little thing isn't planned out and they're like oh my god Sophia is a raging bitch and then I believe I'm a raging bitch. And I'm like, you know what? I That maybe I am a raging bitch. But I'm not giving myself empathy. I'm not letting people in. That's not fair to myself. And that's not fair to others. Period. <sighs> so, you know. Cool stuff, you guys. Now you know weird things about me. And let's just, I want to think also about moral injury and all of these bad things that surround our morals, how we hold a set of beliefs that define our actions and how we tell ourselves and other people we are good people because we believe in doing this. And we believe in thinking this. And when it comes to moral injury in a time of drastic change like the pandemic, you have to form those moral opinions stat. You need to make decisions It like you are in an emergency room operating on somebody's dying heart. What's really interesting is that a colleague approached me after my self-empathy talk and said, Oh my god, I've been looking into moral injury for 
for nurses because she's a nursing student and how insanely difficult it is for them to process their actions with self-empathy in a day because they have to make so many split-second decisions for people who are relying on them for their lives and you can really get yourself down for decisions that aren't the total best but they were the best you could do in a time like the pandemic or a time like the election where you need to hold yourself in a certain way and show people what you stand for it's important that you are being genuine and authentic and just trying your best and it's vital to process your memories and your decisions with self-empathy because it will eat you alive You don't want to form a monster out of yourself. That's not what you are. You're just a human. I think that works for this podcast episode, you guys. Cool. Let me know if you have any stories of self-empathy or looking at your past in a new way. If you've been recently diagnosed with something. Or, you know what? I just want to make a little announcement. This is for everybody. You don't have to be diagnosed with something to to say, oh my god, that makes so much sense why I processed it this way. No. You can I didn't have to be diagnosed with OCD to realize how upsetting it is that I held myself back for that many years because of one little thing that was said to me in middle school and that I should have had more self-empathy for myself. To understand that I can take as much time as I need to take but also that I need to give myself a little more softness. I hope that makes sense. It's kind of just spewing it there. Okay, cool. I'm sweating. Peace out.